in the Christian calendar, there are many events. Historically, the Old Testament, in, in the Old Testament, God has defined and decreed each one of those events. Festivals and sacrifices, each filled with meaning, as decreed by him, that show both his greatness and his goodness. In the New Testament era and following, we no longer celebrate some of those same festivities as the past. But we do celebrate other remembrances of God's gifts, namely the greatest gift of all, his son, Jesus Christ. We celebrate this gift not so much by God's direction, but by our tradition. And today marks the day in which we remember God's gift of life given through the resurrected life of Christ. He had been crucified for our sins, though he knew no sin. And on the third day, he rose again, showing both his ability to overcome sin's punishment, but also the sufficiency of his sacrifice to atone for our sin. With that event on the forefront of our minds, I want to take you to John chapter 10. And I want to set before you and before your hearts this living Christ presented as a good shepherd as he tends to his flock. And so if you would take your Bibles and turn there, for those of you using the Bible in front of you, you can find the text on page 843. Reading in John 10, we come to these verses, beginning of verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. This is Jesus preaching the Christ. This is Jesus pre preaching Christ crucified. And this is Jesus preaching Christ resurrected. This passage in John chapter 10 is Jesus' very own commentary on his own death, burial, and resurrection. These words are not more inspired than any other word in Scripture. This passage is not more important than any other passage in Scripture. 
but they are the words of Christ explaining and expounding upon the very events that he is a subject of. Jesus is both speaker and subject here. This is the greatest preacher of all time, preaching on the greatest subject of all time. Therefore, these words are uniquely special. Exalting Christ and interpreting him, not as we would interpret him, but as Christ is, according to his own words. This is Jesus preaching Jesus. Adding more intrigue to this passage is that the congregation for the day is the congregation of the Pharisees. The ones hearing the message are the very ones tasked with shepherding the people towards the Messiah, and yet they are the very ones that have led him away or led the people away from the Messiah. And so he is the true shepherd, teaching about the good shepherd to the false shepherds. Jesus convicts them as thieves and robbers. He tells them they have stolen the hearts of his creation and condemns them for the judgment of their death. In the beginning of this exposition of who he is, Jesus speaks of a sheepfold, beginning in verse 1. It is a very large sheepfold, containing many flocks, and these flocks have been brought there by their shepherd for night protection. They have entered the sheepfold, and one guards the gate, and, and now they are there. That sheepfold is a nation of Israel, and with its many different flocks of people. And then beginning in verse 2, we're introduced to the shepherd of one particular flock, the flock of God's people. The shepherd comes in, and, and having been the true shepherd, the gatekeeper lets him in. And this true shepherd begins to call out his own by name, and they respond to his voice. Though a stranger may call to them, it says, they will flee from him and instead are drawn only to their true shepherd. And so as this shepherd calls them out, while the other sheep are grazing and going about their own lives with their heads down, these sheep, recognizing his voice and recognizing their name, they, they lift their heads and they begin to separate from the other sheep. They are called out, and the shepherd begins to lead them out of the city and away from everything that is there, away from that sheepfold of Israel. Those that are apostate, who have acted as thieves and robbers, stealing the glory of the Lord, the sheep are being led away from them. And then in verse 7, we get this image of a new sheepfold that has been constructed for the sheep. And he has constructed it away from the city and built up a wall to keep others out. And in that wall, he has left an opening. That opening is for a door, and he says that he is that door. Nobody will enter that sheepfold except by him. Jesus is that shepherd. And now in verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. And everything that follows then is an explanation of how he is the good shepherd. And that's where we pick up our text this morning. Notice first the crucial contrast of verses, verses 11 through 13. 
While speaking, our Lord Jesus Christ offers a contrast between who he is as a good shepherd and who the Pharisees are as the false shepherds. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. To begin that crucial contrast, Jesus first describes himself as the good shepherd. And in those few words, he reveals much about who he is. I want you to notice four specific points about the good shepherd. We notice four things, the declaration of his deity, the statement of his sufficiency, the evidence of his exclusivity, and the guarantee of his goodness. You need to know that those four points are not my own. I stole them from Steve Lawson, and I share them with you for two reasons. First, to prove I'm not the only one who alliterates every point. <laughs> but also because it does capture, most importantly, the essence of what we see in that statement. I am the good shepherd. With the phrase, I am, Jesus declares his deity. This is, he declares himself to be God, to be Lord. I am is a title that God uses with Moses in Exodus 3.14. I am is the divine name that God gives himself, and now Christ adopts it for himself, making it unmistakably clear that he himself is also Lord. We know this to be true because Jesus does many things that only God can do. And now he acts as a shepherd as only God can act. The Lord has long ago been identified as a shepherd of his people in the Old Testament. We read of it this morning in Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. And here Jesus says, I am that shepherd. And therefore he is indicating, I am the Lord. Additionally, we see his statement of sufficiency. A shepherd bears upon himself the needs of the sheep. Isaiah 40, verse 11, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. The shepherd is responsible for the provisions necessary for the sheep, like food and water. And at the same time, he's also responsible for the protection of the sheep, for things like safety and security. Psalm 23 continues on from saying, The Lord is my shepherd, to then saying, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, and he leads me beside still waters. If you've experienced a significant loss or circumstances since I've been here, you've received a book from me called A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. I keep stacks of them on hand because... It is an exposition of Psalm 23 and conveys who the Lord is. And now we see here in, in Christ's care of the sheep, and, and Philip Keller, who authors that book, would remind readers, as they're under the care of a shepherd, like any sheep, the sheep will have no craving. They will have no desire. So it means, I shall not want. They will have no need to search 
for anything else. They will have no need to wander off. The shepherd has provided all they need. And so they are fully content, fully satisfied. That is who we are in Christ. He has made provisions for our greatest needs. Not merely physically, but spiritually. If you continue on in Psalm 23, verse 3 reads, He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. The shepherd cares not just physically, but spiritually. These sheep, they have no cares. We, as those sheep, are not anxious about any perceived dangers because Christ sufficiently protects from those threats. Not only is our declaration of his deity and a statement of his sufficiency, but there's also evidence of his exclusivity. Jesus is the good shepherd. There's a definite article there. He's not one of many shepherds. He is not even a leader over shepherds. He is the shepherd. There is only one and there can be no other shepherd. Jesus, since the beginning of his ministry, has always declared his exclusivity. We see it seven times in the book of John in the I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the light. I am the door. And at the apex, at the center of that, is I am the good shepherd. And then leading away, we have three more. I am the resurrection. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the true vine. Not only is there no other, but there's no need for any other. If he alone is sufficient, then there's no need for another shepherd. That's the evidence of his exclusivity. And finally, Jesus gives us a guarantee of his goodness. He calls himself the good shepherd. And everything again that follows in verses 11 through 18 is a demonstration of that goodness. He says about himself that he lays down his life for his sheep in verse 11, and that he knows his sheep in verse 14, and that he will bring his sheep together in verse 16. Jesus is not good because he does these things. He does these things because he is good. There are two words for good found in the New Testament. One is agathos, to mean moral goodness. The other, the word used here is kalos, to mean beauty and excellence. Sometimes it's translated noble or worthy, still conveying moral goodness. But there's a difference, and, and Philip Graham Reichen reminds us that it is possible to be morally upright repulsively. Jesus, though, is the genuine, lovely, attractive, true shepherd. He's not only holy as God and without flaw, but he is upright in a way that is lovely and attractive. 1 Peter 5, 2 and verse 3 Peter gives a charge to the Christians that have been scattered abroad. And he gives this charge about leaders, saying, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Where does Peter get this charge? Where does he get this example? 
This charge comes from the example of the Good Shepherd of Christ. It describes who he is as the Good Shepherd. As a Good Shepherd, Jesus makes himself completely trustworthy, completely faithful, showing himself to be not merely worthy of our praise and adoration, but worthy of our submission and allegiance. We can place ourselves under his care there in confidence and without regret because he alone is the good shepherd. That good shepherd here stands in very stark contrast to the false shepherds, those teachers of Israel known as the Pharisees in our text. In fact, Jesus stands not only as a contrast to those false shepherds, Jesus is a better shepherd. Previously in verse 5, he compares those false shepherds to strangers. He says they, they don't, the shepherds don't know their sheep, and the sheep don't know their shepherd. That's because they are strangers. And so the sheep will not follow them. But Jesus is a good shepherd. He knows his sheep. In contrast to those false shepherds, he knows them, and he is a good shepherd. We see that in verse 14. And then three times in verses 1 and 8 and, and 10, the false shepherds are compared to thieves and robbers. Jesus owns his sheep. They belong to him. The false shepherds, they only get their sheep through ill-gotten means, having to resort to things like thievery and trickery. And finally, we see in our text today, those false shepherds are hired hands. Unlike the false shepherds who see the sheep only as a means to an end, the good shepherd genuinely loves his sheep. The hired hand will only protect the sheep out of obligation, but Christ does so out of love. Philip Keller, once again, he gives us an example from his own time as a shepherd. And speaking of his own flock, he says, they belong to me only by virtue of the fact that I paid hard cash for them. It was money earned by the blood and sweat and tears from my own body during the desperate grinding years of the Depression. And when I bought that first small flock, I was buying them, literally with my own body, which had been laid down with this day in mind. Because of this, I felt in a special way that they were in truth a part of me, and I a part of them. But then he goes on to contrast that with the hired hands, and he remembers a rancher nearby his own flock. It was operated by a tenant sheepman, and he says, that man's stock, they were always thin, weak, and riddled with disease or parasites. He ought never have been allowed to keep sheep. The hired hand at the exact moment that he is needed fails to perform. According to the text, this has catastrophic consequences. What's scary about this is these false shepherds present themselves from within. They're already there and proves to us then the need to distinguish between the false 
and the Good Shepherd. This is a crucial contrast presented by Christ, distinguishing between the Good Shepherd and the False Shepherd. In Hebrews 13, Christ is called the Great Shepherd. In 1 Peter 5, he is called the Chief Shepherd. And now here, in his own words, he is called the Good Shepherd. Following that crucial contrast, I want you to note second, the critical connection. The critical connection. Continuing to preach about himself, Jesus says, I am the Good Shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Those words establish a connection, a critical connection. They establish a relationship. Actually, there are two relationships. First, we see a relationship between God the Father and God the Son. But second, we see a relationship between the Good Shepherd and his sheep. This critical connection is expressed in two ways. First, it is noted by the reality that the Good Shepherd knows his sheep. John 6, verses 64 through 65 notes, But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. <laughs> Romans 8.29 adds to this, telling us that not just that Christ knows his sheep, but he foreknew them. He knew them before they ever were. Jesus did not look ahead and see and decide or, or learn who was going to choose to follow him one day. He chose to know them. If he had to look ahead, he had incomplete knowledge, and he would no longer be God. And so he would deny his deity. John 10, 29, Jesus says that these sheep were given to him by God the Father. And so he knows them, and he knows them beforehand. But he didn't just know about them. That word to know or foreknow means to have a relationship with. It shows intimacy. So that Christ knows them in a way that only comes from having a relationship with them. And because he knows his sheep, the sheep also know him. And so they respond to him. <coughs> So looking back at verses 2 through 4, Jesus gives a clear picture of this. And it says, John chapter 10, beginning verse 2, But he who enters by the door of the sheep, by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought them out all his own, he goes before them. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Jesus knows them, even to the point of calling them by name. As he enters the sheepfold, he calls out to them and calls them by name, saying things like black nose or spotted ear, or, or maybe he's more creative and calls them cream puff and vanilla bean. I don't know. But he knows them. The best 
picture I have of this, and I didn't ask permission to use this example like I usually do, but the best example I have is Olivia and her cows. If you walk with her, she knows the name of them all. To the point that when you sit down at dinner at night, you know that you're eating Jethro. <laughs> that was the name of ours. But returning to our text, Jesus calls them by name. And then they respond to him. The sheep recognize even the sound of his voice. And they turn from what's before them. And they follow him and, and, lead, and he leads them to lie down in green pastures and beside still waters. Notice more that Christ's relationship with the flock is shaped by his relationship with the Father. Look at verses 14 and 15. I am the good shepherd. I know my own as the Father knows me, and my own know me as the Father knows me. God the Father and God the Son, together with God the Spirit, exist together in perfect unity, in perfect harmony, so that the will of one is the will of the others, and the desires of one is the desire of others. It is this description, then, that identifies the relationship between the good shepherd and his sheep, this critical connection. It, it's characterized by the fact that the good shepherd knows his sheep, but it doesn't stop there. Notice also that the relationship between Christ and his sheep is expressed in another way. The good shepherd not only knows his sheep, but the good shepherd seeks his sheep in verse 16. Christ says, and I have other sheep. They are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so they will be one flock, one shepherd. In verses 2 through 4, Jesus enters the sheepfold, and he, he draws out those that are his. But verses 2 through 4 are still the apostate sheepfold of Israel. And now he says, I have other sheep. Those sheep come from a different pen. That is then that this shepherd is not only responsible for Jews who might believe upon his work, but he's responsible for the Gentiles, those that are not of Israel, that who would still believe and call upon Christ as sufficient Savior. Notice that it is Christ who goes and seeks them out. The sheep don't seek him. Christ seeks them. Previously, John has written in chapter 6, No one has come, can come to me unless the Father has sent me. The Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and I and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. God is in the process here of fulfilling something. Something he said long ago through the prophet Ezekiel. Chapter 34, the Lord offers a severe indictment against the false shepherds of Israel of that day. And he rightly criticizes them for not fulfilling their function. And so instead, he will replace the shepherds with one shepherd. And verse 11 says, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep. And we'll seek them out. That is what Christ is doing in John chapter 10, seeking them out. But then in verse 23, he gives more clarity. And I will set up over them one shepherd, 
my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. Jesus is the new shepherd coming from the lineage of David, the good shepherd set in place by God. And unlike those under the false shepherds, under Christ, none shall perish and none shall want. There is great comfort here in what Jesus says when he says, I must bring them. He is bound by his nature as both good to seek out his sheep and as sovereign Lord to do so as well. He cannot let any perish. Sheep are dumb animals. I didn't realize how dumb. But they'll wander off and they'll get lost when they're on their own. And then they get themselves in these dangerous predicaments in the process. If they fall into a hole or into a ditch and roll onto their back, apparently they can't get up on their own. If left long enough, they will eventually die. Jesus, as a good shepherd, must seek out his flock, ensuring that doesn't happen. And then they respond, is what it says. This is the effectual call of Christ. If he calls, they will respond. Look at our text. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. He must, I must seek out that flock. But on the other side of it, they will respond. I must, they will. I must, they will. Christ does his part and the people respond. This is the effectual call. And then look what happens. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. He unites them together into one sheepfold. We often say that Christians need to produce unity, but unity is already had in Christ. He's already had it there and already produced it within us. I'm reminded of an illustration by George Whitfield, who said they're shared of somebody arriving in heaven and, and cries out to the Lord, Lord, are there any Baptists here? And the Lord said, no, no Baptist. Lord, are there any Presbyterians here? No, no Presbyterians. What about Congregationalists or anybody else? And the Lord says, no, there are none of these. And the guy says, then, Lord, who is in heaven? And the Lord says, only those who have been saved by the blood of my son. They're already united in that one fact. And so that we see that he has other sheep. And he says, I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. What a wonderful picture this is for you and I. Knowing that in the dangers of this world and the dumbness of our ways, upon either our death or Christ's return, we will be brought safely before the Father. Because the good shepherd indeed was good, and he would not let us persist in our ways. This is a critical connection. The crucial contrast of verses 11 through 13 contrast the false shepherds and the good shepherd. The critical connection of verses 14 and 16, it expresses a relationship between the sheep and the good shepherd. And now, verses 17 and 18, 
They show us that a relation is possible through the crucified Christ. Still preaching about himself, Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Notice that by the time we arrive to this text, three times, Jesus has said in some way or another that the good shepherd will lay down his life for the sheep. And by this comment, we see the will of the Son. The will of the Son. And that will of the Son is to lay down his life for the sheep. By day, the shepherd leads the sheep out to the green pastures that he's prepared for them. Those tables. And by night, he leads the sheep back to protection in the sheepfold. The life of a shepherd could be dangerous. We see this from David in 1 Samuel 17 when he speaks of bears and lions as threats to his own sheep. When the sheep are exposed to danger, the shepherd exposes himself to that same danger for their protection. This is who Jesus is and what he does. When we are exposed to those dangers of sin. Christ offers himself as protection. And when we are exposed to the judgment of our sin, then Christ offers himself as the righteousness for our unrighteousness. This is what is offered by the cross. Jesus lays down his life to protect the sheep. John recounts this for us in chapter 19. Allow me to read just a few scriptures, just a few verses of that passage to feel the weight of what has taken place. John chapter 19, they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others on either side and Jesus between them. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. At that moment, Jesus lays down his life. He fulfills the wrath of God. To lay down one's life in this context always means to do so voluntarily. But Jesus does it not just voluntarily, but vicariously. The will of Christ was to give up his life of his own accord, voluntarily, and to do so not for himself but on behalf of the sheep. We know it was voluntary because Jesus could have avoided, um, could have been captured at any moment, but he avoids it. We saw this previously in John 5 and John 7 and John 8. And if you read further down in John chapter 10, you see it again. It says, again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands, in verse 39. 
Jesus allowed it to happen only when the hour had come, according to John 12, 23. So we know it was voluntary, but we also know it was vicarious, meaning that he carried it on behalf of others. We know it was vicarious because he was without sin, and yet he paid the price for sin so that we could enjoy the benefits. The incredible aspect of this is not just that Christ lays down his life, It says that he takes it up again. Anybody could lay down their life. But only Christ can take it up again. He did not say, I am finished. He said, it is finished. Proving both that his death was sufficient and that he was God, Jesus takes up his life because he is life. Because he is life, he is creator of life. Because he is life, he can be giver of life. This goes a bit further, and and think about who Christ is. Christ is eternal. And so because he is life, and he is eternal, he's able to impart eternal life. He's the embodiment of both, and so Jesus may give both. This was not the will of the Son only. It was also the will of the Father. As both a holy and just God, the Lord must punish sin. Otherwise, he risks being inconsistent with his own character. His ultimate provision for this is the propitiation of sin through Jesus Christ, his Son. What's amazing about this is that the will of the Father and the will of the Son are exactly the same. The text reads that, This is a charge that Jesus receives from the Father. Notice what it says in verse 18. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from the Father. Thus he is saying, I have authority over my own life. I have the right to lay down my life, and I have the right to take it up. The ability to do so, the charge to do so, the authority to do so, comes from the Father. The Father has permitted this. By his own will, Jesus may choose to lay down or pick up his life. And thankfully for our sakes, he chooses to continue walking in that pre-established plan. Jesus fulfills his call, and he does so because the will of God to save souls is the same as the will of the Son to also save souls. They are one, after all, it says in verse 30 of chapter 10. Consider Ephesians 1.11, though. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Things occur according to the counsel of God's will. Who counsels God? God. The Trinity seeks counsel within itself. Again, they are perfectly united. They are perfect in unity. One mind, one will. And so the will of God of needing propitiation for sin is met by the will of Christ to be that propitiation for sin. And then look what happens in John 10, 17, our text. For this reason the Father loves me 
because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Our need and Christ's response to our need both draw out the love of the Father. As we see in John 3.16 and 1 John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him might should not perish, but have everlasting life. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. He is the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. But the good shepherd also takes up his life again. Last week, we talked about four responses to Christ as king. There was a response of inference from the crowds, where the crowds had inferred, or they made assumptions and judgments about who they thought Christ was, and then they responded to those judgments and those expectations from the disciples, there was a response of ignorance, meaning that they worshipped Christ, but admittedly, by their own admission, they didn't have a full understanding of who Christ was. And then we have this other crowd, the crowd that came after Lazarus was raised, and they respond with indifference. They were indifferent to who Christ was and concerned only about what Christ could do for them. And then, of course, we have the Pharisees again who respond in indignance, so upset by their loss, potential loss of power, they get angry and they seek to both arrest and crucify Christ. At the time I asked, do we worship the Christ we want or do we worship the Christ we need? There are many ways to wrongly respond to Christ, but there is only one way to respond rightly to Christ. There are many ways to reject Christ, but there is only one way to receive Christ. <coughs> Belief in the sufficiency of his ability to overcome sin through his death, burial, and resurrection. Submission to his ongoing reign in our lives. Those who receive Christ incorrectly, like those in John 12, they receive Christ not as he is, but as they want him to be. And eventually, when Christ fails to meet their expectations, they will reject him. But who Christ is, is far greater than we could ever want him to be. He doesn't meet our expectations. He is greater than our expectations. He is greater than the Christ we could ever desire. He is greater than the Christ we could ever deserve. When the people wanted an earthly king, Jesus was a heavenly king. The people wanted a miracle worker who would raise the physically dead, but Jesus, his miracle was to raise the spiritually dead. Who Christ is, is exactly the Christ we need. He is the good shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, 
and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Our Father God, we are in great awe this morning, this afternoon, for thinking about this great majestic plan that you have instituted in conjunction with your Son and your Spirit for the forgiveness of sins, for the propitiation of our sin, Lord. And Father, we remember that today. We remember the cost of your very own son's life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. But Father, we also remember and, and acknowledge that he can take up his life again, and he did, proving the sufficiency of his work and his acceptance by you, Lord. Father, may we look upon the cross and see ourselves, first off, in our great need, in our great desperation. But Lord, may that cause us to cling to your Son even more. And may that cause us to have a deeper relationship with you. May we see you exalted in our lives, grateful that you have taken away that sin. And so Father, we give you great praise that not only that your Son died, but that he was resurrected. Help us to place that before our hearts and minds, not just today, but every day, Lord. We thank you for who you are and what you've done. It is in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.